There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbach, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Jim Ward, the president and CEO of the Phoenix Symphony Association. We had a great conversation that led off with talking about the value of naivete when we are in new situations, to how when he took over at the symphony, it was a week away from bankruptcy, to the limited amount of funding provided to the arts by the city of Phoenix as well as the state, to the necessity of a thriving arts community in attracting top talent to a city, and finally, the incredible 71st season of the symphony, which is currently underway. You can find out more about Jim and the Phoenix Symphony at phoenixsymphony.org, and I definitely encourage you to check it out, as well as attending one of their many amazing performances. If you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend, leave us a review at iTunes or wherever it is you listen. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Jim Ward, President and CEO of the Phoenix Symphony Association. Welcome, Jim. Hello, guys. Appreciate you being on the show today. Centauri, I know that you've been taking violin lessons. How long before you think you will try out for the Phoenix Symphony? <laughs> so, uh, I no longer take violin lessons for a reason, and that's because it's really hard to teach an adult to play an instrument. Uh, so I went through about a month and a half of, I had a great, great teacher, he was phenomenal, but ultimately um, I lost patience with myself and I didn't want to put him through it anymore, so I have the utmost respect for anyone who can play, well, any instrument, but definitely a string instrument. It was very hard, it was very, very hard. For yeah, it is, they are, but don't, you shouldn't give up. Um, you know, it's great uh, for many reasons for doing it and, it, and you can't learn it in a month, so, you know, you should be done. pick so it up again, Bye. take a break. What well, is hard, but you know, but everything in, everything worthwhile is hard, right? So, you know, um, skiing's hard. I mean, the first time you ski, you fall down, and, you know, but uh, hey, you know, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. You'll, you'll get to a point where it's, it, like, it's not hard anymore. It's manageable, and then when it's manageable, it's like, begins to be fun a little bit. You get, you get the enjoyment out of it rather than the screeching string kind of thing. But you'll get to that hump where all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm actually playing a piece and it's not very a little lamb anymore and I can express myself and I get something back. And that, that doesn't take that long. That's good encouragement. All right. Yeah. I'll take your advice. Yeah. So don't give up on your dreams until Jim tells us that we don't hold open auditions at the symphony probably. Yeah, that, that may not happen in your, in your near future uh, to play with the Phoenix Symphony. There are many musicians who have about 20 years head start on you, yep, but that's, that's not to say that 20 years from now you couldn't come and, and, and check us out. So not to dash that dream too much. But. Yeah. So don't give up, but maybe? <laughs> that is the point of today's story. Well, but the point maybe is not to, not to do it to be a symphony musician, but uh, to do it for your own personal uh, enrichment, enjoyment. And that's really the only reason to play any instrument, in my, in my opinion. So, well, thanks. That's a great point. So Jim, you sir have a have a, a, a incredibly boring background with companies like 
Lucas Arts and Lucas Films, where you were responsible for the business development of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and then did a little bit of work with Windows 95 and the Rolling Stones, and then Nike and Rolling Out Tiger Woods. So any, uh, any big takeaways from those experiences that you want to share? Things that worked great, things that you said, you know what, I'm surprised that that didn't go quite as well as I thought it was going to. Oh, wow. Well, that's okay. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot. It's yeah, a lot. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to condense all of that down, you know, in my Forrest Gumpian life where I've ended up in these unique situations. I've been very fortunate and lucky. Um, look, I, I think at the end of the day, um, my experience has come in two flavors. Um, I've always been an outsider asked to come in to shake up an industry. Um, that, that maybe needed to have some help, or I've been asked to come in and turn something around completely. Uh, and, uh, and in either of those instances, you know, I guess, I guess what I've learned is um, that, that sometimes naivete can be a very good thing. Um, because with naivete, you're going to ask the questions people think they already have the answers to, and that's when you begin to shake things up. Because sometimes the way things are done over and over again are done for a reason, and that makes sense. But sometimes they're done over and over again uh, because they're just done over and over again. And to be able to naively question that sometimes leads you to innovative uh, solutions. So, um, so never be afraid of your own naivete. Never be afraid of what you don't know. And ask all the questions because sometimes... By asking those questions, it will lead you to new and different answers. Is that how you approach those scenarios? With the confidence to be able to ask questions at the risk of people saying, well, that's a stupid question? Well, I learned it over time, you know, um, uh, for, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, but, I, but I'm naive most of the time. You know? <laughs> the things I've done in my career, uh, again, I've not necessarily done before. You know, when I went to Lucasfilm, you know, I'd never watched a movie in my life. Um, and, you know, George is the one that actually suggested that, that look, um, you know, he said, it, you, you're, you're, if you come aboard to Lucasfilm, um, you know, you, you, I'm going to, you know, send you down to Hollywood and you're going to be an outsider. You've not done it before. You've not watched a movie. They're not going to trust you. They're not, you know, they may even try to stab you in the back. They may even try to come up here and get me to fire you, by the way, all of which happened. He <laughs> said, but, but in your naivete, you will ask those questions that they think they have the answers to, and that's how we're going to revolutionize Hollywood. And, and he, was, he was right about that and all the things that, that, that he does and did. So, um, you know, it, 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 it may be confidence over time, certainly now, but early in my career, asking those questions was truly out of naivete and then kind of listening and then figuring out, well, okay, well, what if we tried this? And then that old, that old, you know, uh, sort of saying as well, that failure creates opportunity too and not being afraid to, to have failure and being allowed to have failure and having the support system and bosses and leadership to allow you to fail and then, you know, learn from that and move on as well. And, and certainly that happens a lot now in my venture capital career, because I, I, I do that as well, in addition to the symphony, and um, that's what that's all about. It's about disruption, it's about looking for those opportunities, and um, coming into business scenarios where I'm not an expert, but 
um, asking the right questions may lead to the right answers. So all, all of that kind of gels into that ability to do it. Got it. I talked to, um, I had the privilege of talking to Amen Meridia, do you know him, the CEO of Sprouts. And he was saying that one of the things that he, that is focused his success and one of the things he's ingrained into his company is the culture of curiosity. So to your point, he said that the thing that has really launched Sprouts Forward is just having, enabling everyone at every level to just ask questions yeah. and say, all right, we've done this for a really long time, but why? Like, is there a reason? And being comfortable with that, uncomfortable, being comfortable with the uncomfortable and saying, all right, well, why? Let's talk about it. And so I love that you, yeah. you spoke yeah. about that. Well, and, and also allowing everyone to do that. So one of the key tenets that I've always held on to my entire career, wherever I've been, is a core team philosophy. Um, you know, uh, both at Lucasfilm, LucasArts, here, everywhere. You know, having people sit around a table and, um, uh, and, and having those conversations and, and asking those questions. And so, you know, um, a lot of times businesses run and still in a very siloed way where the finance guys are going to deal with finance and the marketing guys marketing and the operations guys are operations. You know, here and in, in my past, I get everybody around the table and it might be a finance issue, but that doesn't mean a, an ops person isn't going to have a good idea or a marketing person or vice versa. And, um, you know, and also giving them the freedom to, to say whatever they need to say. And I tell my people, um, you know, we never are going to leave, you know, a, a big white elephant on the table on slate. You know, we, we are going to tackle whatever it is and nobody should be afraid of bringing up anything. Um, you know, and even if it's awkward, let's bring it up because it'll fester otherwise. So let's bring it up. Let's talk about it. Let's let everybody have their shot at some ideas and then we'll figure out, you know, kind of uh, what we do. And, and sometimes, again, people not knowing and that naivete and their, their experience level and what department they come from, you know, leads you to, yeah, we never really thought about that. That's like, that's an obvious question like that we would never ask if we we're just dealing with people in a certain department. So all of that definitely works and comes into play. So for sure. From what I know about organizational leadership and habits of, of functioning teams or organizations is that getting asking for and getting feedback is really, really important. And that seems like an obvious thing, but easier said than done. When you hear about the Google engineer who got fired because they solicited feedback from people and he gave feedback that was unpopular and so they fired him. What are your thoughts just on that? Right. Well, you know, it, it kind of goes into all of these issues today. Um, look, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the freedom of expression, kneeling uh, at the, you know, uh, um, national anthem, all of those kinds of things. You know, so look, um, in a private enterprise, whether it's a nonprofit or private sector business, there is a private sector business. Our Constitution guarantees the freedom of speech. Um, uh, but uh, it, it does not guarantee a freedom of speech in, a, in an environment such as a business, et cetera. So there is a line, ultimately. And that's going to change for every business and culture and how that, that business is run and, and, and what their, their stress levels are uh, for that. So, you know, unfortunately, yeah, the guy, you know, was uh, asked for some information, but what he gave back crossed a line for... Uh, for an organization. That's their call. We can agree with it or we cannot agree with it, but <clears throat> they're a business and they're going to run it the way they see fit. And if not, 
and they don't run it correctly, then stockholders will leave and they'll go out of business and those guys lose their jobs. So mm. that's just the, the nature of things. Um, you know, in, in our environment here, uh, we, we in, my, in my past, you know, we, we, I encourage open and honest dialogue, being very open with, with concerns and issues. Um, you know, our weekly staff meeting, we, we, we show everything. We show our up-to-the-minute financials. We talk about the up-to-minute sales. We talk about every aspect of our organization and encourage people to ask questions or challenge if something doesn't seem right to them um, and have a dialogue uh, around that. Um, and, and, um, and people, you know, and, and, you know where, where we do draw the line is it's got to be constructive. So, you know, if someone, if someone starts criticizing someone personally or something, that's just not productive and we draw that line and that's not acceptable here. But um, at the end of the day, uh, having that open environment, I think is, is really helpful and, and businesses have to just determine where, where that line is for them. So in 2011, you came on and became the president and CEO of the symphony. How did that come to be? Well, um, I had uh, retired from Lucasfilm and decided to move back here to uh, Arizona because I, I really loved it and fell in love with it when I went to graduate school here. Um, and I got back and um, went momentarily insane and ran for Congress in the 2010 uh, cycle, um, <laughs> which I promptly lost. Uh, but uh, uh, one of my uh, finance chairs for my campaign was a great guy uh, named C.A. Howlett. And C.A. at the time was the chairman of the Phoenix Symphony. And he called me up a couple months after my loss and said, Jim, I, I'm reaching out to everyone and anyone I know and would wonder if you could come down for a couple days to volunteer at the Phoenix Symphony. And what, what C.A. didn't know is that I'm very passionate about music. Uh, so I was classically trained as a pianist from the age of six, I played the oboe and bassoon in orchestras and ended up getting a minor in music in undergrad. And I thought, well, wow. it'll be fun to go down and kick the tires of a symphony for two days, right? And yeah. so now those two days obviously have turned into seven years, uh, but um, in a good way. And uh, But that's how I, I first got my feet wet with the, the symphony. Got it. Now, this is the whole night naive. Naivete. Naivete. Um, and I'm just going to ask questions. This is the, the Phoenix Symphony Association. What is, why is there an association on the back of that? Um, well, there's, it's a nonprofit. Um, so it's a, it's a 501c3. It's a good question. I have no idea why the association is on there. It's just the Articles of Incorporation back in 1947. That's what they called it. So there's no real rhyme or reason to that per se. Got it. And what does the CEO and president of the symphony do? Well, uh, uh, on any given day, it's a combination of a number of things. You know, um, I've run, you know, billion-dollar companies uh, in my in my past, and I will tell you that in my naivete, coming into a <laughs> symphony, and at that point, you know, we're we're about a, a thirteen million-dollar operation here, right? So I thought, well, how hard could that be, right? And I'm telling you, this is one of the most uh, complex, crazy things that, that anyone could ever run into. So on any given day, um, I'm, I'm definitely fundraising uh, because a big part of our revenue comes from contributed revenue streams. So I'm talking to individuals or corporations or foundations or governments that uh, support us and trying to 
to get them to, to support us through, through fundraising. Um, I'm dealing with um, the artistic side of the organization with our great um, uh, conductor, uh, uh, Tito Munoz, um, who is uh, you know, uh, an amazing music director here. Uh, we have 66 full-time contracted musicians um, and working with them, they are a unionized workforce and we are under a collective bargaining agreement with them and there's a number of things that need proper maintenance and issues that come up all around a, a contractual agreement with, uh, with musicians like that. So dealing with that to planning future seasons and what are we going to be playing to guest artists and guest conductors uh, and that, that type of thing to marketing issues, how are we going to put butts into seats and and do what we need to do there. Uh, venue selection, negotiating with the city for the use of Symphony Hall and what those contracts look like. What other venues are we going to play in in Mesa and Scottsdale? Uh, um, you know, dealing with HR issues, uh, dealing with uh, technology issues, uh, infrastructure, uh, things like that. Dealing with my head of finance on forecasting and budgeting and, and all those types of things. So you know, it's. Uh, there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. And at the end of the day, remember, we are in the entertainment business. We give over 300 performances a year. So it is nonstop. We do a performances over a weekend, the very next weekend, we got a whole new show coming down the pike that we got to get ready for. It's like Saturday Night Live, right? And they do a show and then boom, they're back in developing the next show. And so, um, you know, just the production aspect of that keeps everyone, you know, on their toes and, and uh, keeping all of that going. So. so I'd love to hear um, about the evolution of the symphony under your tenure. So growing up in Phoenix and also being on the funders slash foundation side for a number of years, I know the state of arts and culture uh, from a philanthropic standpoint in Phoenix and know certainly that Phoenix Symphony has kind of risen to the top under your tenure. But talk to us a little bit more about how it was the symphony when you started to the symphony now. Sure. Well, um, uh, so when I came down for those two days to kick the tire, the symphony was a, about a week away from bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how bad it was. Um, and so uh, we needed to move very quickly and perform triage. Um, the symphony, it was a simple equation, not dissimilar to many orchestras across the country or most orchestras across the country. They were spending more than they were raising, uh, either in <laughs> ticket sales or in contributed revenue. So we needed to do a classic turnaround, scorched earth turnaround, uh, lower the expense model. Um, and any time you attempt to do that, um, you know, over 50% of your overhead are your musicians. Mm -hmm. And because they're a unionized workforce under a collective bargaining agreement, I had to sit down with those musicians and um, say, look guys, uh, we're gonna have to open up your contract. Um, the rub for us came, or for them, came that two years prior, they had taken a 19% cut in their pay, mm -hmm. the largest of any American orchestra up until that time. And they were due for a snapback or a restoration of that funding that following summer, which was aggravating the financial situation. So um, the unenviable task I had as this new guy walking in was, hey guys, we're going to have to open up your contract. But on top of that, the money we owe you, we're not going to be able to pay you this coming summer. So you have a horrible... Hobbesian dilemma here. You can go on strike, and, and rightfully so, frankly, because unfortunately the previous regime mismanaged the situation. Um, or you can take a giant leap of faith on a guy 
who uh, has never run a nonprofit, let alone a symphony, who in full disclosure ran for Congress as a Republican against Karchek and busted unions up at Lucasfilm. So there's your choice, guys. But if you decide to take the, the, the leap of faith with me, the quid pro quo will be a completely different culture and environment than I think you're used to. Um, I'm gonna give you every single piece of information that you're gonna need to make an intelligent decision. We're gonna sit down and look at that information, uh, agree on the veracity of it. We're gonna then talk about the implications because I think we're gonna all come to the same conclusion that what's happening is unsustainable. Um, but then here's what I need from you guys. Um, I'm gonna bring certain skill sets to the table, but you, many of you have been with this organization for 30 years. I need you to teach me how to run this symphony. I don't know how to do it. And I'm gonna rely on you because I bet you got a lot of great ideas. And together, if you're willing to take that leap of faith, we can partner and claw our way out of this thing. And those musicians did something unique in the American workforce today, an American unionized workforce. They put the needs of this community before their own needs to keep music alive for all of the benefit of that. And they forgave that snapback in order to give me enough time to begin a turnaround and became true partners in, in what's happened here. So they are the true heroes of this. And everywhere I go, I, I want people to know this because whether you like the music aesthetically or classical music or Beethoven or you know Gershwin or whatever we do, you owe it to these guys to come down to Symphony Hall and buy a ticket because they did put music ahead of the, their own needs in order to keep music alive so that we could have a thriving cultural economy to help our own economic development in the state. And that, that's, that just doesn't really happen. So they're, they're true heroes in my mind, but they made that critical decision and thus the turnaround uh, uh, began. And uh, we needed to go through a lot of things. We needed to do soul searching about well, what are we about? Um, they also came to me and said, Jim, we don't buy the mission of the symphony. And I said, well, I'm a little embarrassed. I don't know what it is. And they said, well, it's basically we want to be the LA Philharmonic and, and we don't buy that. And, you know, they were right. Um, there were three fatal flaws with that. The first is it suggested to them that they weren't as good as the LA Philharmonic. And regardless of whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. That's not a way to motivate a creative work. They didn't like that. No. <laughs> Um, secondly, the previous regime went out into this community and said, hey, we want to be the LA Philharmonic. And this community said, well, wait a minute. We're Phoenix and we're Arizona. And to be honest with you, we're fighting for water with those Californians and we don't like LA. So what are you talking about, right? So that fell on deaf ears. And then the third thing is, is they began to spend like the LA Philharmonic, which is the financial mess that, that I inherited. So I said, look guys, all I know is I just ran for Congress. And um, the dialogue in this community, unfortunately, has nothing to do with the arts, let alone the symphony, let alone the LA Philharmonic. The dialogue in this community is all about our inability to diversify our economy, to attract and retain the kinds of businesses that we need for economic development. And by the way, when Craig Barrett says, I shouldn't have brought Intel to the state of Arizona because it's 48th in the nation in education, those are the issues this community is grappling with. So our only chance is to align our needs with the needs of this community in order to have a seat at the table to even have a dialogue. And so with those musicians and the board, we crafted a new vision and mission, and it still exists today. Our vision is to be the arts leader in the revitalization of Arizona, in our own way to help make this state as great as it can be. And our mission is to leverage 
what's unique to us, which is the joy of music, in three distinct ways. The first is by feeding the soul of the community through healing and, and, and teaching and, and giving hope and aspiration and all of those wonderful things that music can do. The second is to bolster a cultural economy because we know a cultural economy can attract and retain the kinds of businesses that we need for economic development. The arts in Phoenix alone have an economic impact of over $400 million a year. Guess what? That's on par with the Super Bowl. And you know what? We deliver a Super Bowl to this community every single year, not every five to seven years. And that's more of an economic impact than golf tournaments, than spring training, than the, 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 the final four. Um, and we also know that this state has invested in verticals like biotech, TGen, and all of those things. And we know from talking to headhunters that when any healthcare-related organization is looking to move, number three on their checklist is culture, right? Mm. The number one buyer of Steinway Pianos today in America are doctors, right? So a cultural economy is critical. So mm. that was the second part of our mission. And the third part was to help educate the next generation of a creative workforce so we'd have the human capital here to drive that economic growth, right? And so we adopted that vision and mission and went back out into this community in order to have a seat at the table to help solve the challenges that we all have. And in addition to that, we redefined what a symphony orchestra was in people's minds. They had their, they we're not your grandfather's symphony, right? The idea was nice musicians playing boring, innocuous music at Symphony Hall, we don't, want to, we don't need to support that because we want to help human beings or, or dogs or we want to give to education or whatever it happens to be, but you guys aren't doing a whole lot that we care about, right? Well, here's the pivot. Fact is, is we are and we did more and more, both in education and health and human services. We impact over 125,000 kids and families every year. That's second only to the Department of Education in the state of Arizona. Arts education has fallen on us out of the school system to do that. We go out into this community and do innovative programs with Alzheimer's. We're the only orchestra in the world conducting human experimentation on Alzheimer's patients, their caregivers, their family members, and our own musicians by measuring their stress levels with biomarkers, spit tests, measuring alpha amylase and cortisol levels in their bloodstreams. We're doing innovative programs in schools using music as a means to an end to teach science, uh, technology, engineering, and math, and have quantified that with statistical proof that with our test students, we're improving their retention and logic and, and, uh, and vocabulary. So all of a sudden, um, we became part of the solution. All of a sudden, uh, we have been able to impact this community uh, in a significant way and, and do so by helping the community along the way. What do you think is the disconnect between um Normal citizens, lawmakers, legislators on the the importance of arts and culture and one um, parts of importance of arts and culture in education, but also um, I've, I've heard you speak on this many times. And you touched on it a couple of times in your um, in your talk there on economic development. So I don't think people most people realize how important those how important something like the symphony or the art museum is to the decision for a major company to come to Phoenix. Yeah. It is. It's an economic play, and people don't quite get it. You know, um, you know. Look, uh, from a political perspective, from our state legislature, um, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, um, 
you know, business here in this community abdicated the responsibility and leadership for defining great candidates to enter into political life. And that left a void that has been filled by extremes on both sides of the aisle, but particularly in the right side of the aisle, and that's where I thought I used to live. Um, and as a result, those extremes deal with a very limited slate of issues that are of concern to them. And it's not that they're not important issues, but the issue of economic development is only understood through a certain lens. It's not understood in a broadest lens possible, which is art, a thriving arts economy uh, culture is, is critical to that, you know? So until we get um, a caliber of representatives in our state legislature that can truly grasp that, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle. We have been successful with, with uh, many of them. Uh, Senator, uh, former Senator Steve Pierce has been a, an undying champion of the arts because he gets the, the both aesthetic and the economic value. Senator Bob Worsley, absolutely. Adam Driggs, a number of these folks have, have fought and bled for uh, small increments of, of, of territory when it comes to increased funding. It, it's frankly um, sad that, that that's the time and effort had to go into that to get what we got out of it. But um, so, so that's certainly, um, you know, an issue. I think um, there, 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 there needs to be some champions in the political realm that, that can do that um, and not look at it as a liability politically. Uh, because it will pay dividends. Look, I'm a venture capitalist. All I'm about is return on investment. And there's a huge return on minimal investment in this whole thing called the arts. You know? And we have amazing assets here that can be leveraged that, that aren't. Commerce Authority needs to do a great job of leveraging what we have to attract people here. Um, so hopefully that, that will happen. On the art side, however, having said all of that, we need to do a better job of managing ourselves. And the arts organizations in Phoenix traditionally have gone through cycles of fiscal crises where they've asked usually individuals to come and bail them out. So they need to be run better. And, um, and where we get to a point where there might be funding through um, uh, a program called MPAC, which is a, a tenth of a cent sales tax increase that could throw off dollars, well, we've got to make sure those taxpayer dollars are invested wisely by being smarter about how we organize ourselves and maybe collaborating with ourselves to reduce our back office expense models and things like that, that other communities do that we haven't done yet. So I think all parties need to come together and rethink the model here in this community, both politically from, from a governmental support perspective, from, from individuals and foundations and the arts themselves to kind of figure out maybe there's a better way to do this. And, and certainly that's what we're trying to advance in our own way at the Phoenix Symphony. Thank you. That is a lot of good work that you are doing, so thank you for that. And in the spirit of naivete, I'm going to keep asking questions. Um, I, I read about how the National Endowment for the Arts, which went into place in 1965, it seems like the money that was there back then, and a lot of that was funding the arts, has been flipped almost totally. And so now I'm guessing that a lot of your funding is now not coming from the government, it's coming from private. Yes, yes. Look, our, um, um, our government funding only represents 2% of our operating budget every year. Now, I guess as a Republican, I can say I'm proud that I'm not relying on the government. But on the other hand, 
having lived in the nonprofit world, government should be supporting this because it's a return on the investment, right? Um, the NEA is woefully funded at the national level. Uh, and in fact, even when I ran for Congress, it, it was like either get rid of it or fund it at a level where it can actually make impact because it's kind of in a no man's land right now and a void where it doesn't have a whole lot of money. Um, but really the burden should more fall on, on, on the local uh, uh, community and, and the state as well. And listen, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the city of Phoenix is is underperforming in this area. Uh, the city of Phoenix funds the arts to the tune of about $750,000 every year, all of the arts, you know. And just by comparison, um, the, the city of Miami, uh, the arts have the same economic impact that we do here in Phoenix. The city of Miami is half the size of Phoenix, but the city of Miami supports the arts at $32 million a year. 32 times the amount that Phoenix does for a city half the size of Phoenix. Columbus, Ohio, another town where the arts are strong there and they have the same amount of economic impact. Columbus, Ohio is a third the size of Phoenix and they fund the arts at $16 million a year, 16 times, right? So we're not even in a ballpark here in terms of that support. The state of Arizona supports the arts at $1.5 million for all of the arts across the entire state of Arizona, you know? Um, so again, as a Republican, I'm not looking for handouts. What I'm suggesting is, is that the local and state governments get very smart and figure out where are they gonna get the best return for their dollars. Invest those dollars wisely. And I would argue that a thriving cultural economy granted with arts organizations that are wisely using those grants um, is a very good return on that economic investment. Uh, and it would return uh, royally uh, as evidenced in other communities, Dallas and Texas and San Diego and other communities that support the arts at a way higher level and are doing economically way better than we are. Uh, so it's just part of the, uh, it's a missing link in the narrative that we should have here in this community and it's a missing link uh, in our ability to go out and sell this great state and community that we live in. Do those um, communities where you listed a higher investment, do they have uh, higher member per capita patrons? Uh, well, you know, um, n no. Uh, I mean, when we take a look at, when in the League of American Orchestras, which is our trade organization, if you will, they're broken out to groups, and we're in group two, and you're basically lumped in with orchestras that are same budget size that you are, hmm. which is an indicator of the support, basically, of the community. So in our group, we're we're in 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 sit with cities like you know Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and San Diego, and, and places like that. Um, and uh, you know, in 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 terms of those budget sizes, you know, we're all kind of equal. But when it when you take a look at the um, the contributed revenue uh, uh, taxonomy and who who gets what and what revenue streams, that's where the vast difference becomes. Because our, the burden in this community has shifted uh, to individuals and foundations, right? So individuals in this community sh bear a lion's share of this. And frankly, foundations, if it weren't for Piper Foundation and Flynn and Lodestar and Steel Foundation, a number of wonderful foundations who do support the arts, um, we'd, be, we'd be in trouble. So there's a different mix here to keep our head above water but we're not hitting on all cylinders, and that's, I think, where we need to be. We also have 
great corporate support, but as you both know, um, the penetration of Fortune 500 per capita here in Phoenix is, is way low versus a city like Minneapolis, for example. And so, um, so we've got great partners in APS and SRP and Freeport McMoran and Wells Fargo and great, great support there. But it's rather thin compared to our other counterparts across the country. So because we're not getting the government support, there's not a lot of corporate support, that burden falls on individuals and foundations. Um, and on top of that, because these arts organizations here aren't endowed like the East Coast counterparts that have long histories, right? Um, we don't have the endowment to fall back on, on either, you know. Uh, Phoenix is an adolescent city, right? It's the Wild West still relative to sure. some of those cities. It's still growing. It's still especially trying to... Especially when it comes to philanthropy. Especially when it comes to philanthropy. And, you know, we have a good part of our population that comes in and they, they give where they came from rather than, than here. So all of these weird variables have come to play to align planets to make it a tough a tough situation for nonprofits in general here, but particularly the arts in this community. It's not an excuse, that's just the reality. And, and what's amazing in talking about resiliency is that the symphony, the ballet, the opera, these, these <coughs> Phoenix theater, these amazing arts organizations are still around. We're, we're in our 70th anniversary this year, 70 years uh, since 1947. In a, in a city that's hard, barely that old, you know. So um, anyway, it, it, it's, it's a testament to the hard work and the people who are committed. We just need to maybe figure out a different model. Got it. Well, those are staggering statistics. $32 million that the city of Miami gives to the arts versus $750,000 that, that Phoenix gives to the arts. So I guess you just need to follow the money on that one. Is it that, that we're more focused on... And now I, I need to rephrase my question. Where does the money come from to put arts in schools? That comes from the state, and that's in their education budget. Mm -hmm. And that's being cut because there's not that many art programs in schools anymore. Well, listen, I, I think um, a number of, of issues. It's a tough, tough situation, right? You've got rising costs in terms of educating our population in the public school system. You are, in my opinion, saddled uh, with certain, uh, certain uh, constraints, teachers' unions and things like that. And I'm not railing against unions, I'm just saying they're realities that put constraints around what you can and can't do. We as a state are very fortunate to have a very large charter school movement um, and great organizations like BASIS, and in full disclosure, that's where my daughters go. Great Hearts is another amazing charter school organization, and so there are a lot of great options, and those, those, those options do incorporate the arts, uh, very, and Great Hearts in particular, and we go and play in those organizations. But we also go and play in public school situations, particularly in Title I situations. So I don't know if there's a silver bullet. I, I don't profess to know uh, the answer, uh, but given priorities, yes, arts are usually the first to go. Well, and the speak from someone that comes from the, the public school space, uh, arts are tested. So if you're a school and you're looking to, look to where you want to allocate resources, you're going to give to reading, writing, math, you those things, it. and not someone on the violin because you're not accountable. That's for that. exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just the way we've structurally set up and put our priorities, the system, and and put our priorities and. And yeah, and guys, you know, at the end of the day, over, listen, when I grew up, 
uh, you know, I, I in school had to take, that's how I learned to play the elbow and the bassoon and all that. And, um, uh, and, you know, and I also played sports and all of that. Um, as, our, as our culture has grown, unfortunately, um, the concepts of culture and arts has, have changed. Um, and, uh, and the priority has, has changed and therefore, um, and funding has changed and challenges have changed. So it, it's, I don't, again, I don't know the, the solution, but all I know is we're doing our part uh, at the symphony to be able to, you know, we, we have symphony for the schools where we bring kids down here um, to see concerts, many for the first time in a, in a hall like that. We go into classrooms, we have these innovative mind over music programs. So we believe very much in, in education and are doing what we can uh, to do that. But, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough challenge, you know, on, on what's going on now. Excellent. And I know that it's, it's awesome that you guys are in the 70th season and I was going through the schedule and you have some, some amazing performances that are going on right now and will be going on through, I don't know when the season ends. Uh, we end early in, in early June. Okay. Um, but yeah, we have we've had amazing season. We still got a, mm -hmm. an amazing season coming up. Certainly, on our classic side, uh, we've got uh, you know Tito Munoz, our our music director, has really infused our programming with new young American conductors and composers, and uh, so we are really benefiting by a lot of unique what we call fresh ink music, where it's never been heard before. And nice. So that's. That's a lot of fun. Um, clearly, also this year is the 100th uh, anniversary birthday of Leonard Bernstein. And Leonard wrote a lot of amazing classical music, um, the Jeremiah Symphony and, and things like that. So, so we've got a wonderful classic season still to come. On the pop side of the equation, you know, we're very excited because we've done a contract for uh, all eight Harry Potter films, and we uh, are bringing those in, and people have the opportunity to come and watch the movie with a live symphony underneath oh, wow. playing cool. the score, right? Wow. So we just did the first Harry Potter movie uh, in October, and it obviously sold out. It's great. We have the second one coming in January, so please go check that out. I am telling you, it's an experience like you've never seen to actually watch the movies and have a full symphony play the score live mm. underneath it. And by the way, we have all sorts of fun. People come dressed up, they boo Voldemort, they cheer <laughs> Harry, and it's just a great, great environment. Uh, we're doing fun things like the music of Pink Floyd out at Mesa Amphitheater with the laser lights. Uh, nice. So boy, we, we did, you know, we've got, we're doing uh, in honor of Leonard Bernstein, um, uh, a West Side Story uh, this year as well. So, you know, boy, we've just got so much. I encourage people to go to phoenixsymphony.org and check out our whole season. For, for people that are committed Phoenicians that want to see the city's future be a bright one, what would you encourage them to do in I, regard to the arts? Yeah, I encourage them to do two things. First, I encourage them to you know, find an art form that they, they will truly enjoy, um, whether it's the symphony and the broad range of music that we play. I guarantee you we play something that everybody's going to like, but or ballet or opera or the art museum or the botanical garden, um, you know, find an art form that you truly enjoy and get, get behind it. And that means going and participating and buying tickets. And then also on top of that, contributing, you know. Um, it's interesting, 66% of our patrons to the Phoenix Symphony just buy tickets. They don't give us any other incremental dollars. And I understand maybe from their perspective, that's their contribution that's to us. 
But nonetheless, um, in the models that we have for this, uh, it takes both tickets and contributed revenue. And that contributed revenue could be 10 bucks, you know, something. Uh, so find the art form. And we are so lucky to have the assets here. Listen, um, the ballet run by Eve Anderson. Eve is, was a protege of Balanchine. Eve, Eve danced with world famous, he just happens to like to live here. We're so lucky to have him and what he's doing here. Our opera, under the leadership now of Joe Spector, who came from Austin, Texas. Um, Joe's a great guy, and they're doing some great work there. I think our symphony is phenomenal. Um, this botanical garden we have here is an amazing one. Our art museum is So we have, we have great assets here, so let's support them. And it will come back in spades for you, your children, your grandchildren, uh, to have this thriving culture. Because if that dies, and certainly were the Phoenix Symphony to go down, even the Phoenix Symphony, we're the largest arts organization, it would be another nail in the coffin of our ability to attract and retain those kinds of businesses. So if you only think of it as an investment selfishly for you, your kids, and your grandkids from an economic development perspective, think of it that way and come down and find something. You know, everybody loves Sleeping Beauty that the ballet is going to be doing or Swan Lake or <coughs> Beethoven's Fifth or Harry Potter. Come on. Everybody can find something that they do enjoy and, 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 and get involved in that way. That's excellent. So, Tyre, what have we forgotten to talk about? Answered all my questions. Thank you, Jim. One last question for me, Jim. Sure. Are the trumpets the biggest divas in the symphony typically, or is it? <laughs> oh, no. Listen, you know, I, I'm not, this, is the, this is the honest truth. You know, these musicians... Um, uh, you know, they, they, are, they are athletes, and people don't think of it this way. A professional athlete begins playing their sport, you know, seven, eight years old or whenever they start. These musicians start training, and sometimes at three and four years old. They have gone to the best music schools, Juilliard, Curtis, Indiana University, Oberlin, across the country. Um, and uh, the discipline that it takes for them to train and become as excellent as a professional athlete is the same. And it's very physical. Each, each instrument demands different kind of physicality, whether you know playing a violin with your arms or your embouchure and blowing and breath work in terms of the brass and things like that. Um, but the one thing that musicians do learn very early on, particularly symphony orchestra, is working together. That collaboration of having to have your own part but having that blend in with, you know, 70 other musicians is, is amazing. And um, so they, they are very much part of, of a team. They look at it that way. Um, and they're led by a music director, in this case, Tito Munoz, who is super talented and, and, and gets the best out of that team they possibly can. And, you know, he's that quarterback out there on the field. I'm lucky I'm a I'm a coach that can kind of watch from the sidelines, but these guys, they know what they're doing. And, and, uh, and maybe as opposed to some professional sports, there's not a whole lot of diva stuff that goes on because they realize at the end of the day, they've got to really work together. So they're a wonderful crew, a brave crew, a courageous crew, and they are truly heroes, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, this uh, podcast. Well, excellent. Thank well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. And, yeah. and, and definitely thank you for your work. Because what you've done is uh, is certainly very impressive and very important to the community. So, 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show. Feel free to give us a share on social media. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.